This is the 500th anniversary of, uh, I don't know whether it's his birth or his death. I know that this next week is the 200th anniversary of the birth of Charles Darwin. As I read a news article this morning that a whole bunch of churches surrounding Oxford are getting together to proclaim him to be no threat to Christianity. And I was very, very um, reassured to know that these churches were were telling us that. Um, Anyhow, this is Calvin's 500th anniversary. And it occurred to me as I prepared to preach this morning to say to you before I begin the sermon that um, it would be much better for you to learn to... uh, to learn some one man through and through than to take a smattering of a bunch of them. We tend to be uh, flitting about today and not to stay long in any one place and where we live and, and a whole bunch of things, the jobs that we hold. And I'd like to encourage you that when it comes to your reading and study of the Word of God, that instead of just flitting about and choosing a little bit of here and a little bit of there and a little bit of here, that you take one man, and I say man because generally it's men who have spent their lives studying and writing about the Word of God while women were caring for children. It's a general rule. You take one man and you devote yourself to his opening up of Scripture. And do that instead of taking like 10 or 20 of them. And it would be good for you to have a man that's not alive today. Because the men that are alive today will be good for coming generations. But generally you need somebody outside of your time to help you to understand your time. And if I would recommend one man, you know it's going to be John Calvin. Um, I, I cannot tell you how much I have grown through just having that man is the one I read. Uh, I read other people, but I know John Calvin. And there are things that I don't agree with him about. Um, I'm not recommending to you Calvinism. I don't believe there is such a thing as Calvinism. I don't believe there is such a thing as Protestantism. I believe there is biblical truth. And I believe that the Protestants, and particularly John Calvin, are most faithful in teaching Scripture. And so I don't ever call it Calvinism, it's the Bible. And you say, well, that's high-handed of you. And I say, no, it's my belief. Regardless, though, of the issue of Calvinism or Reformed doctrine, I would still tell you that even Jacob Arminius, Calvin's inveterate enemy, Arminius, all right, said there was nobody equal to Calvin in exposing and opening up Scripture. And I would encourage you that this is true. And there's really no excuse for not reading Calvin. You can get him free off the Internet. You can read him on any, well, not any passage of Scripture. Most Scripture, you can read him free. Because now the Calvin Translation Society version of the, uh, his French text is way out of copyright, so you can just get it free. And if you want it, uh, you know, write the church secretary, and I'll, I'll send you a copy of what you want, or she will. But choose one man. Your whole life, devote yourself to that man's teaching of Scripture. Matthew Henry would be an excellent one. Uh, he's, he has done commentary on the Bible, the whole Bible. Um, celebrate the 500th anniversary of John Calvin by deciding that you're going to be humble enough to be taught consistently your whole life by one man. And uh, you will find Calvin to be a good teacher. I'll, I'll give you one or two reasons why I love him. I'll give you one. Calvin constantly, when he opens up the text of Scripture, says one thing. He says it over and over again, and it is, don't try to know things beyond what God has revealed. Don't spend time in your mind trying to plumb the depths of a subject that God has not chosen to reveal. And if we would learn that today, just limiting ourselves to the knowledge of the things that God has been pleased to reveal to us and not trying to go beyond it, it would save us from a tremendous number of problems. If the Bible says this and the Bible says this and you don't understand how this and this come together, limit yourself to the understanding of this and this. And don't try to come up with a solution that the Scriptures don't give you. That's called humility. 
And Calvin hammers that home again and again and again and again and again. And he not only hammers it home, but he tells you if you're not content with that, it's because you're wicked. Now, I like that. That when our knowledge tries to go beyond what God has chosen to reveal, that that's sin. And if you think about it, in the Garden of Eden, what was it that Eve wanted? She wanted knowledge that God had not chosen to give us. Okay? So anyhow, that's a commercial. You are going to be formed by somebody outside of Scripture. Scripture's doctrines are not going to come to you direct. They're going to come to you through me as preacher. All right? And to a large degree, the choice of a church is a choice of preachers. You understand that. You're going to be formed by other men. I recommend John Calvin to you. Rush Limbaugh. All right, all right. I'm not recommending Rush Limbaugh. (laughs) I just get a kick out of how he's constantly... All right. Now this week, let's go to the book of Matthew again. Matthew 26, we're nearing the end. This is our 187th sermon on Matthew. I hope you feel like you've achieved a lot. How many of you were there at the beginning? Raise your hand real high. I'm actually surprised there are that many. All right, Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. Now, this week we turn from the protests of the disciples that they're not going to abandon Jesus to the account of the disciples abandoning Jesus. Jesus said that they would all fall away because of what was coming. He's hitting his passion, his time of suffering and death. And they all say, no, we're not going to fall away. And then he tells Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, I'll never do it. And Jesus says, yes, you will. And Peter says, I'll I'll die before I'll do it. And now the passion starts. This is the final hour until Jesus is arrested. And we see the, the prophecy of Jesus being fulfilled. It's interesting that at the beginning of the Institutes, which is sort of the most concentrated porterhouse steak of Calvin's stuff, all right, the first thing he says is that true religion consists of knowing two things, knowing God and knowing ourselves. And if you would think today of the entire world that you live in being one mass conspiracy trying to keep you from knowing God, and from knowing yourself, you'd be pretty, pretty much on target. And the way the world tries to keep you from knowing yourself is by reassuring you that whatever failings you have, they're peccadillos. They're small things. They're white lies. They're good intentions that didn't quite come true. Uh, they're uh, overlooking goods that you should have done, but don't be too harsh on yourself. And... So as we come into this time when Jesus bears the sin of the world, if we looked at the sin according to this world's eyes and according to its words and according to what psychologists and psychiatrists would tell us, we'd never, ever be able to understand the suffering that Jesus now takes upon his shoulders. In Romans 12:3, it says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, what? Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. People often come to church here, and the first couple of Sundays they get very, very angry. And if you ask them why they're angry, they'll give you a whole bunch of different reasons. They'll say, well, Tim this or Tim that or Tim the other thing. But what really the anger is, it's because they've been flattered their whole lives. It's because even their mother has never told them that they're wrong. But she's, she's flattered them. She's spoken glancingly and liltingly and lightly of their, her child's sin. And so when we come to the Word of God and we hear the Word of God preached with power through the Holy Spirit, not through me. It's not because I weigh 250, 55, and I'm 6'2 and have a loud mouth but it's because the Holy Spirit pierces through the Word of God to our hearts. And we'll get angry. 
It's an automatic thing. But as God gives you faith, then what happens? Then you don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. And women, you know, they come here and they think I'm a monster because I tell you that you're going to someday have to submit to your husband. (laughs) You know, and women get so angry because why? I'm sexist, but I'm not sexist. I'm telling you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. And if God gives you faith, then you will learn to be a woman. And part of being a woman is this condition of being the weaker sex, which is what Scripture says. But if God doesn't give you faith, everything in you will just hate it. And you'll say, I can't believe anybody's left in the United States that speaks the way he does. But if you're given the gift of faith, you begin to see your sin. You begin to see that you want to be big and you want God to be little and you want God's servants to be tiny and to have small and flattering voices. (laughs) Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Because if you do, you're not going to understand our text today. So let's hear it. Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 36. Then Jesus came with them. He's with the eleven. Judas is gone now, so no more twelve. He's with the eleven, and Judas has gone off to betray him. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as that wilt. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Now, where is it? that the most intense part of Jesus' suffering begins on this night. Well, it is a place, verse 36 identifies it, is a place called Gethsemane. And so it was a definable place with boundaries. It was a place that people knew of, and it was called literally olive press. That's what Gethsemane has as its roots. When I was... Much younger, I lived for a time on a farm, Breezy Hill Farm, on top of Breezy Hill, which is the largest hill, the highest hill, for many miles uh, in, uh, in the middle of Wisconsin. And on the northwest side of Breezy Hill was a large apple orchard, Breezy Hill Orchard. And there were a bunch of apple trees It was a good place to grow apples. They were tasty because of the way the wind patterns and the climate and everything on that hill. Uh, People knew of Breezy Hill Orchard and of its apples. And if you went to the top of the hill, there was a little shed. And in the shed was where the apples were sold in the fall after they were picked. And also in the shed, at times, we would make cider. And... To make cider, you have to press it, and then it would be poured into the, the jugs, and it would be sold to people. So they'd buy their, uh, they'd buy their apples, and they'd buy their, their apple cider. Well, I think in the same way of uh, this place slightly outside of Jerusalem, that the hill is called the Mount of Olives, and it's where olive groves are. And then a part of that hill is a place called Gethsemane Olive Press. 
And so you pick the olives and then you bring them down to the place where the olives are pressed and the They're put into a place where they're crushed, where they're pressed, where they give up their olive oil. And that's Gethsemane. And that is where our Lord Jesus Christ goes to be pressed. And to take on the weight of the sin of the world and to be crushed and to be bruised for our iniquities. It's Gethsemane. It's right outside of Jerusalem, and the disciples had a habit of going there. It's likely that because of the mass of the number of people that came to Jerusalem for the Passover, that they would have to find places to sleep. There weren't huge hotels downtown. And so probably a bunch of people would go out to the Mount of Olives, and it's likely that the particular place that Jesus and the disciples frequented was this part of the Mount of Olives of Gethsemane. And here Jesus went with the eleven, and he went with them to pray. Just before his death, note what Jesus did and note what he did not do. He was approaching his death as some of us are approaching our death. But Jesus did not prepare for death by partying or by gambling. It's an indication of the faith of America that although 50 to 75% of us say we're evangelical Christians, if you'll go to any of the casinos around our country, you'll find how people prepare to die. I was talking to Taylor this last week about gambling and telling him that I have been in a number of these casinos. Every time we're up in Michigan, I usually make a trek down to Michigan City and go inside the gambling casino there. And when you go in these casinos, it's the most depressing sight you can imagine. Because the casinos are filled with slot machines. And sitting at each slot machine is someone who is in the process of dying, literally dying. Their hair is white. Their hair sometimes is blue. And they're all tied to the slot machine by a leash. The management, when they walk in, gives them a leash. And and they have to bind themselves by the wrist to the machine. But, of course, it's not a leash. It's an identification uh, bracelet. But you walk around the casinos, and there these old people that are dying are with leashes tied to the machine that they're using to forget about death. If you go to some of these places and go out in the parking lot, you'll find that there's a popular bumper sticker. And the bumper sticker says, I'm spending my children's inheritance. And this is how America prepares for death. If you go into a nursing home and walk from room to room, you will find that each room has a television blaring. And that's how they prepare for death. They watch game shows and they watch Oprah. Some of us forget the approach of death by playing video games. And some of us by drinking. Some of us prepare for death. Some of us prepare our loved ones for death by giving an increasing dosage of morphine. We're concerned that there isn't suffering. And so we take morphine and we give it to the person who's dying because we can't bear the thought that they will suffer. And so they're given morphine and the morphine sort of renders them not fully conscious, not fully aware of what's happening as they pass into eternity. Very, very frequent for people to come to me as a pastor and ask me what I think of the care of their loved ones as as death approaches. And they say, you know, uh, my loved one is in pain from cancer or this, that, and the other thing. And, uh, you know, we want to give him some painkillers. And I'm wondering, what what do you think about this or that painkiller? And usually it's morphine. And, of course, the question is, you know, If you give an increasing dosage of morphine, how will your loved one die? 
Will they die from the cancer or will they die from the morphine? Because, of course, if you increase the dosage of morphine, what happens? Well, the morphine suppresses the vital functions. And it stops the patient from breathing or it stops the heart or it it stops the life. And so the question is, what are you doing? Are you preparing them for death by rendering them oblivious to what's happening, that they're passing into eternity, that soon they will stand before Almighty God that is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment? And are you going to render them unconscious as they approach death? You say, but I don't want them to suffer. And often I feel at the end of life that the real issue is not the suffering of the patient. The real issue is our suffering. The real issue is that we don't want to go through the valley of the shadow of death with them because we do fear evil. And so if we make them incapacitated and unconscious and have them gone, it shortens our suffering. It shortens the call that we have to clothe the naked and to feed the hungry and to mourn with those who mourn. This is the reason that nursing homes are filled. It's not that our country doesn't have the wealth for one of us in each marriage to take care of the loved ones until they die. Are you kidding me? The United States of America, we can't afford to do that? Are you kidding me? (laughs) I mean, really? Come on, somebody laugh. It's just ludicrous. The wealthiest nation that the world has ever seen, but we can't afford to care for our mother and our father as they die. And so what do we do? We put them in nursing homes and we turn on the television and we give them morphine. And Jesus did what? Jesus was preparing to bear the sins of the world and to go to the grave. And what did he do? He was unbelievably conscious. And he prayed. He didn't take any drugs and he didn't go gamble. And he didn't play video games and he didn't get drunk. He didn't party. He didn't go on a cruise. He didn't take his family to Disney World. And Jesus took out at night, he took them off, and he said, join me. And then he prayed. Verse 36, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. That would have been James and John. They were brothers since they were both sons of Zebedee. And he began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. It was a terrible hour, and Scripture records for us that Jesus himself described it Peter and James and John this way, verse 38, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. It's hard to translate this Greek here that we put into English with deeply grieved. It doesn't quite get at the depth of suffering that Jesus here describes. Jesus in Luke uses a word to describe it that is translated agony. Jesus is in agony. Jesus is in torment. Jesus is in anguish of wretchedness. Jesus is in a state so awful that death would be a relief. Deeply grieved in agony to the point of death. If it was a dog, if it was a horse, we would shoot him to put him out of his misery. Now, why was it that his soul was downcast and his mind was so wretched? Well, Jesus was in agony because now... He faced the end for which he had come. He faced the purpose for his incarnation and his life. And that was his death. And now he began to bear upon himself his glorious, sinless, meek, holy self, the sins of the world. 
And yet, not just the sins of the world, but much more awful. He bore upon himself the condemnation and judgment and the wrath of God against us. Jesus now prepared for the moment when on the cross and breathing his last, he would cry out in a loud voice, My God! My God! Why hast thou forsaken me? It was not simply the dread of the end of his physical life that put Jesus in wretched anguish to the point of death. There have been many, many martyrs who have watched the executioner's broadsword slice through the air, have watched the torch put to the faggots piled at their feet and rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And Jesus was not, and Jesus is not, their inferior. Jesus is not less capable of bearing the physical torment of death than we are. In our own materialistic day, too, too much is made of Jesus' physical torment. And yes, it was awful. He was whipped and he was beaten. Thorns did pierce his brow. Nails were put through his hands and feet. And he hung on the cross gasping for breath. It was no humane but an inhumane punishment and torture. In fact, it was wicked torture. And then we can add the emotional suffering to it and we can see his suffering increase. He was left alone by the three in his hour of need. And they slept as he was in agony of prayer. And then he was betrayed by one of the twelve, and he was betrayed by a kiss. It was someone he loved, Judas, who betrayed him. And then he was abandoned by the eleven as he went to trial, and his beloved Peter denied him, swearing he did not know Jesus. And then he was mocked, and he was slapped, and he was mocked, and he was stripped, and he was mocked, and he was taunted, and he was mocked, and he hung naked. And it was at the crossroads outside Jerusalem, like the bypass and third. And he hung between two thieves, two common criminals, as he died. Yes, Jesus suffered physically. Yes, Jesus suffered emotionally. But his physical and his emotional suffering were not what drove him to this agony. At the edge of death there on the Mount of Olives in the place of the Olive Press. Psalm 22:14 prophesies concerning him, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. And so what was the suffering, and why was he in torment? Why was Jesus in torment? Matthew Henry puts it this way. Now is the close engagement in single combat between Michael and the dragon. Hand to hand now is the judgment of this world. The great cause is now to be determined, and the decisive battle fought in which the prince of this world will certainly be beaten and cast out. John 12:31 Now judgment is upon this world says our Lord now the ruler of this world will be cast out When Jesus works salvation he is described like a champion taking the field Isaiah 59:16 And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede And then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense. Matthew Henry continues, Now the serpent makes his fiercest onset on the seed of the woman and directs his sting, the sting of death, to his very heart, and the wound is mortal.
few years ago, there was a man who was committing adultery with his secretary. And we had a faithful pastor of this church. One day he ran into this man out on the streets of Bloomington on a Saturday morning at a time when a man should be with his wife and children. And this man was out with his secretary. And so this pastor confronted this man right there in his car. And he said to him with the woman sitting there, what are you doing? This ought not to be. And the man was furious to be confronted in this way. The man was, by the way, a confessing Christian. The man was actually a Presbyterian Christian, actually a member of my denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. And the man responded to this rebuke by writing a letter to our church threatening us with legal action if one of us ever spoke to him again about his sin. And skip forward a few years, and this man's lawful wife, he had divorced her, but he was living with his secretary without the benefit of marriage. And I was asked to do the funeral when his ex-wife died. And when I got up to preach, I had this deep, deep sense that I must speak against the sin of adultery. Can you understand that? And so I did. And then years later, I heard that the man was angry and that his friends were angry at me for raising the subject of the sin of adultery in that funeral service. Now, if we sit there and think, what an awful man, we don't have much self-knowledge. Because we've sat in funeral services, and we've been angry when sin has been brought up, and we've sat in church services and been angry when sin has been brought up. And really, if we're honest and we look into our hearts and see ourselves as we are and not as we wish we were, we can go through worship service after worship service after worship service in our life and see how time after time after time we have bristled at the subject of our sin being brought up and condemned by God, by the Holy Spirit, by Scripture, by the pastor, by the prayers, even by the hymns. And yet, if we will today admit that it is just that God speak of our sin and condemn us, that no man can stand righteous before a holy God, that we ourselves are adulterers, that we ourselves hate the servant of God that calls us to repent of our sin. And if we think about the day when we will stand before God, you know that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And we think of the great tribunal of God and we think of standing before him and giving an answer for our sin, giving an answer for the lusts of our flesh and the lusts of our eyes and the pride of life. We realize none of us will stand. None of us will stand. And Jesus, as he faced death, what was his sin? He was the spotless Lamb of God. There was in him no sin. And yet, Jesus Christ had an infinitely worse burden on him than any of us have ever had in a funeral service, ever in front of the reading of Scripture, and ever will in the tribunal of God. Because Jesus bore on himself the sin of the world. He 
bore on himself the sin of every man and woman loved by God. All of our sin, in all technicolor, with no excuses, no mincing words, no grandmother to describe it in a way that would make us feel better about it. He bore the sin of the world. And he is going before a holy God. And he will not just bear the sin, but he will bear the decree of God, holy God, against our sin. There will be no excuse. There will be no guilty with an explanation, Your Honor. There will be no, well... God, this is a little sort of morality play we're going through where, you know, there are the sinners, but but I'm going to take it upon. But you know I'm righteous, God, and so don't judge me harshly. Jesus himself bore the sins of the world. And it wasn't a little thingamabob that was like sort of done, you know, to sort of pacify God. You know, that God would look at him and see us and look at us and see him. And, and there it's all cleaned up. These openness theology theologians, oh, the godlessness of them. One of the things that's most awful is that they describe the, the redemption, the atonement, the cross they describe as, as one among many ways that God could have accomplished redemption. You imagine the blasphemy of such a statement. That, you know, God could have set it up in this way and He could have set it up in this way, but He chose to have His only beloved Son bear the sin of the world. But there were many ways that He could have accomplished redemption. Here Jesus goes, as in a sheep before the shearers is dumb, a lamb before the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. And yet he did open his mouth. He did open his mouth. And what did he say when he opened his mouth? He said this. He said, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And did you notice what his posture was as he spoke? In the only place in the Gospels that it says that Jesus was prostrate. Jesus was prostrate before his father saying, My father, if it is possible. He fell on his face. And prayed. Can you picture that? Can you picture Jesus at the place of, of the oil press? Judas is coming with his kiss. And he brings the eleven. It's dark, it's night. Everyone is weary. And then he takes the three out of the eleven and tells them to watch and pray. Brings the three over here and tells them to watch and pray. And then he goes over here and he falls, he falls with his face to the ground. He is God incarnate. And before his father, he falls with his face in the dirt. This is an amazing picture. He'd left the eleven, then he left the three, and he went off at a distance, and yet we have in Hebrews 5, verses 7 and 8, a description of what went on there. We think that maybe somebody heard what went on there. Maybe they weren't so far away that they could not hear his anguish. Because in Hebrews 5, we read, In the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. 
And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. There are many people that have been scandalized by the content of the prayer of Jesus. And they, they, they say, how could Jesus pray to ask to be released from the will of his Father? Jesus knew the will of his Father. Jesus knew that he had come to die. How could Jesus be perfect and yet ask to be released from the obligation that he had from his Father? I want to read a little bit from Calvin. <laughs> I'm sure you're surprised, right? Calvin says, But as it appears to be inconsistent with the divine glory of Christ, that he was seized with trembling and sadness, many commentators have labored with toil and anxiety to find some way of escaping the difficulty. But their labor has been ill-judged and of no use. For if we are ashamed that Christ should experience fear and sorrow, our redemption will perish and be lost. If we are ashamed of Christ's sorrow, if we are ashamed of his suffering, then our redemption will perish and be lost. And then he quotes the early church father Ambrose who says this, I not only do not think there is any need of excuse, but there is no instance in which I admire more Jesus' kindness and his majesty, for he would not have done so much for me if he had not taken upon him my feelings. He grieved for me who had no cause of grief for himself, and having laid aside the delights of the eternal Godhead, he experienced the affliction of my weakness. I boldly call it sorrow because I preach the cross. I boldly call it sorrow because I preach the cross. For he took upon him not the appearance, but the reality of incarnation. It was therefore necessary that he should experience grief, that he might overcome sorrow and not shut it out. For the praise of fortitude is not bestowed on those who are rather stupefied than pained by wounds. In other words, if Jesus had taken morphine, how could we identify with him? How could he bear our sins? How could he be a priest that we knew we could trust with our weakness? Calvin says, Jesus had no horror at death, therefore, simply as a passage out of the world. In other words, he wasn't simply afraid of death because he was leaving this world. But because he had before his eyes on what? He had his eyes on the dreadful tribunal of God, the judge himself, armed with inconceivable vengeance. And because our sins, the load of which was laid upon him, pressed him down with their enormous weight, there is no reason to wonder, therefore, if the dreadful abyss of destruction tormented him grievously with fear and anguish. And we look at Jesus' prayer and we say to ourselves, how could it be? How could it be that Jesus would say, if it be possible, take this cup from me? And then immediately turn around and say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And Calvin says, the prayers of believers do not always flow on with uninterrupted progress to the end. They do not always maintain a uniform measure. They are not always arranged in a distinct order. But on the contrary... 
The prayers of believers are involved and they're confused. And they either oppose each other or they stop in the middle of the course like a vessel tossed by storms, which though it advances towards the harbor, it can't always keep a straight and uniform course as in a calm sea. Sometimes in prayers we are carried away hastily by the earnestness of our wishes. And so this prayer of Christ was not a premeditated prayer, but it was the strength and violence of grief that suddenly drew this word from his mouth, to which he immediately added what? What does Calvin call it? Three or four times in this section, Calvin calls it a correction. The same vehemence of desire took away from him the immediate recollection of the heavenly decree, so that he did not at that moment reflect that it was on this condition that he was sent to be the redeemer of mankind. As distressing anxiety often brings darkness over our eyes, so that we do not at once remember the whole state of the matter. In short, there is no impropriety. In other words, it's not improper. If in prayer we do not always direct our immediate attention to everything so as to preserve a distinct order. God does not desire us to be always exact or scrupulous in inquiring what he has appointed, but allows us to ask what is desirable according to the capacity of our senses. Christ, amidst the utmost vehemence of grief or fear, restrained himself within proper bounds. Nay more, as musical sounds though various and differing from each other, are so far from being discordant that they produce sweet melody and fine harmony. So in Christ, there was a remarkable example of adaptation between the two wills, the will of God and the will of man, so that they differed from each other without any conflict or opposition. Isn't that beautiful? What is it? When we require of ourselves and of those who are dying that they pray in conformity with the will of God and never give any indication of weakness, what is it? You know what it is? It's requiring of our loved ones something that Jesus himself didn't demonstrate. It's requiring of them an inhumane and scrupulous legalistic holiness that does not please God. Because he did not, when he put flesh on his son, he did not allow his son to escape our weakness. Now, what is the application of this to us? Well, the first application is that if you're ministering to someone who is sick and dying, And if you're ministering to somebody who is depressed, and if you're ministering to somebody who is mentally retarded, and if you're ministering to people who are broken by sin, to somebody dying of AIDS, to somebody who has had an abortion, to somebody who is walking in to have an abortion, the first thing we need to realize is that Jesus himself was what? Jesus was tempted in all ways like as we are. And if we find ourselves wanting to condemn people and say, how could they? And yet the Bible tells us Jesus had all the weaknesses and all the temptations that are common to man. It's not about Jesus, is it? It's about our pride. That's what's going on. Any sin you see, the thought should be there, but for the grace of God go I. If you're ministering to somebody that's dying and their prayer over and over again is that God will let them die and you want to tell them, don't say that. It's impious. It's sin. You have not yet begun to enter into their suffering. Jesus took upon himself the flesh of man. and the suffering and the temptations. And it would be it would be a terrible terrible mockery 
of the life of a Christian for those who follow him to show themselves incapable of identifying with the weakness and the unbelief and the suffering of those they claim to love. That's the first application. You are weak. You are a sinner. I am weak. I am a sinner. And so if Jesus is a merciful high priest, it would be really twisted if I weren't. Right? And then only one other application, and that is that if God was pleased to make his son bear the sin of the world, and if we refused to bend the knee before Jesus, and we refused to place our hope in the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sin. then what we would do is we would render the suffering of our Lord on the Mount of Olives and if Gethsemane that night as he was crushed and bruised for our iniquities, as the chastisement of our peace was upon him, as, as his stripes healed us, it would be very, 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 very tragic for him to give himself up to purchase us and then for us to believe that it was not possible for him to have mercy on us. It would be very sad for us to think that our sins are so awful that even the blood of Jesus Christ would not be sufficient for our forgiveness. It would be a very sad thing for us to believe that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for my sin but not for the sin of my wife or my husband or my son or my father. It would be a very sad thing for this blood of Jesus Christ to be shed to buy forgiveness and salvation and eternal life for me and then for me to not speak of Jesus to those that I live among, those that I teach, those I study next to, those that work on the line with me, those that I purchase things from who come in my house to clean. It would be a very sad thing for my mouth to be stopped and for me not to give praise to Jesus to those who are headed for hell and judgment. It would be a very sad thing for this church to be a monument to our silence. For the blood of Jesus to make us smug and to make us secure and cruel and heartless and loveless.